Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The world's longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody and welcome along to another live edition of Midweek Motorsport. It's just after 8 o'clock here in the UK. I'm John Hindoff, back on home turf uh, this evening. And on, first of all I should say it's uh, Series 14, episode number 5. And up in London is Tim Gray. Hello Tim. Hello John. And on the pack programme tonight, we have what? Uh, we have all the usual features. Uh, we'll be doing some news. We might do some news in Spanish. Uh, we'll definitely have a pointless press release of the week. Uh, we have some special guests, including our big interview. Uh, shall I tell people who that is? Yes, you can. Yeah. Uh, it's Senna. Excellent. Uh, Bruno, obviously. Uh, we have Declan Brennan joining us in the second hour. We have Andrew Cotton joining us in the first hour. We have Richard Crail joining us. Wow. Uh, it is going to be a packed show. It is going to be a very packed show tonight. Let me run through a little bit of uh, housekeeping. James Brown. Not that one. Tuning in for Midweek Motorsport after an epic weekend of action. The Bathurst 12 hours. I'm looking forward to this. Paul Norris, kids in bed, other half out at the theatre with mates. Means listening live for the first time in Yonks. Good stuff, Paul. Uh, Kevin Bull, apologies for absence. Four kids under the age of 12. They got no sleep on Saturday night due to the excellent Bathurst. Uh, and getting no sleep, not the kids. Uh, on the Bathurst 12 hours, I'm going to need to be in bed before Midweek Motorsport finishes at 10. Uh, Chris Suku, Alexander Orkin, good evening. Uh, Ian McCarthy settling in to uh, the almost as long as the off-season, early-season breaking proceedings. This is the longest... That's a fair point, Ian, there, who's tweeted in at Speculatement. Uh, he, uh, he's pointing out that, in fact, between now and our next live race, is the longest... I think is the longest part of the year. It is, uh, by quite a distance as well. Yeah. Uh, right turn lover, no air fares, listening in from, be, from home this week. Excellent. Uh, Marcus Miller, uh, Mike Sargent, finally catching Midway Motorsport in the office in Canada. Best way to finish off the rest of the shift. Sarah Rigby uh, and Daniel O. Leslip, I think you would say that. No apologies for absence. Uh, first time listening live. Please can you avoid all discussion of the Bathurst 12 hours? I still have four hours to go. Thank you in advance. You might want to turn off then after we've done... Uh, Andrew Cotton and before we get Trailsy on okay does that seem reasonable uh, apologise for absence this week says Kevin Payne we're still uh, and not in Florida with much better weather following washed out Rolex 24 right uh, no airfares for Marcus Miller catching his first show live since moving to the Emerald Isle welcome to Ireland 
Uh, Rob Jana is looking forward to the podcast this evening. Uh, and Lounsey's now retired car says, apologise for absence. I'm still in the out ice bath trying to find out why my brakes doesn't work. But frankly, just pretty happy with four. Catching up with like, uh, last week's episode before tonight, hating the tyres. That was about an hour ago. Uh, and the crotch belt listening in as well tonight. Uh, keep the questions, points of order and everything coming in please to at Specutainment. But before we go for our top story and the news jingle tonight, Tim has afraid, so I'm afraid, um, some very sad news. Tim. Uh, yes, the news that Dr. Robert Hubbard, formerly Professor of Material Science and Mechanics at Michigan State University, uh, died yesterday. Hubbard and his brother-in-law, the IMSA racer Jim Downing, were the inventors of the hands device. Inspired by the death of Patrick Jackmar in a Renault 5 turbo race at Mid-Ohio in 1981, the pair realised that the number of motorsport deaths were being caused by preventable basal skull fractures. Eight years later, the hands device was used for the first time in an IMSA race at Daytona. But it wasn't until the early 90s that proper research into the effectiveness of their invention took place when General Motors provided the funding for a motorsport safety programme led by Dr John Melvin, who brought in Dr Terry Trammell and Dr Steve Olvey. The death of Roland Ratzenberg in 1994 led F1 medical delegate Professor Sid Watkins to assess the benefits of the hands device, with Gerhard Berger testing it the following season before a three-year research project funded by Mercedes. CART, led by Trammell, was the first series to mandate its use in 2000, following the deaths of Gonzalo Rodriguez and Greg Moore. And following the death of Dale Earnhardt in 2001, NASCAR followed suit, Formula One finally adopting the device in 2003. The FIA made its use compulsory in all competitions it sanctioned from 2009 onwards. To date, a quarter of a million hands devices have been sold. Hubbard retired in 2006 and was inducted into the SCCA Hall of Fame in 2014. A statement from Hans said, Our thoughts and prayers go to his family and friends. Bob's invention truly changed the world of auto racing and he was a kind-hearted person who would help anyone in need. He'll be missed greatly. And uh, thoughts and condolences to all his friends and family. I, I, I've raced with a hands device. I didn't think I would like it, um, but you get used to it very, very quickly indeed. I can't even begin to think how many serious injuries and deaths uh, that uh, invention uh, has has saved. And uh, what a what a fine fella. And uh, Jim Downing, I know uh, I have spoken to Tim, to Jim on many occasions, uh, as around the IMSA paddocks, and particularly when we were up at Road Atlanta, uh, and thoughts particularly with him that was a very close-knit family you're listening to midweek motorsport it's series 14 episode number five all the latest motorsport news from around the world midweek motorsport come on the tim surprise me what's our top story tonight our top story comes from the world of formula one Hooray! But we don't have Nick Damon, unfortunately. He's had to go to uh, Amsterdam. For some tulips? Something red, yes. Uh, have you ever been tempted to change your name? Uh, 
I think everybody goes through that phase, don't they? You, you must be especially tempted because your name is difficult to spell and pronounce. Well, it took me till I was thirteen to be able to pronounce to, to be able to spell it. Um, I, I always wanted Mr. a middle name. Uh, I Hindenburg, Eindhoven. Um, I uh, I always wanted a middle name, and I didn't have one. And I thought I might change my name to have a middle name. And then, when I was trying to get a job in radio, I thought I might change my name as well to something else. I have been John Hind for a while, rather than Hindhoff. Friend of mine, uh, when. Google Mail first came about, couldn't get his uh, name um, as a Google Mail address, so he invented a middle initial for himself, uh, which was letter C, Oh dear. Uh, and I asked him what it stood for, and then he told me. And we can't say that. On can't radio. say that word on the radio. No, no. Cork. Sauber, though, changing right. their name to Alfa Romeo in Formula One this season. Hooray! Yay! Yay! Uh, why is this uh, newsworthy? Uh, because Sauber are one of the longest-serving teams outside of Ferrari now. Yes, and McLaren and Williams. Oh, okay. Um, they, don't they have to? When do they have to have that in by though? Because doesn't there have to be consensus? There has to be a vote, mm. and that vote took place last week. Ah. Uh, now, once upon a time, these votes were done by fax. Can I not still vote by fax? No, you have to use the uh, e-voting app that the FIA has. So my vote won't have been counted if I sent it in by fax. No, but then. you may still have been charged. Oh, all right. Uh, only 24 people are eligible to vote. Mm-hmm. They're the representatives of the Formula One teams, engine suppliers, tyre suppliers, uh, commercial rights holders, and the FIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long do you think it took them to vote this? Well, if it's an e-voting app, well, I, mm, you see, it depends, doesn't it? Because they might have opened it at a certain time the day and closed it at another to allow for time zones. But really, it should have took them very little time at all. Uh, it was a unanimous decision to change the name, uh, or to allow the name change of Sauber to Alfa Romeo. Mm. Uh, it took four days. What? Yes, four days to get 24 people to vote using an app. Right. Whereas it would have... Uh, uh, no, don't. Uh, go back to facts. You could have flown them all to Paris. You could have driven them all to Paris. That's also true. You could have had well, one person... Half, you could, well, yeah, all right, fair enough. But you could have got them... You could have basically, if you'd got them all to a point... Uh, some all into Europe, you could have sent one person around and picked them all up and still got to Paris in four days. Uh, this wasn't the only vote that was uh, taking place at this time, though. Okay. Uh, because another team wanted to change its name. Right. And that's Force India. Ah, yes, they're going to be pointless Team India. Or No, there's no India. No Force, no India. Right. It's Racing Point. Just Racing Point now. Yes. Right. Uh, that wasn't their first choice of name. Really? What did no. they want to be? Uh, they wanted something with a bit more heritage. Brabham. Hello, <laughs> L.A. Lola. The people who own the name said no. Who N-O. do own? Uh, who did say? Who who would say that was? The, is that Multimatic that owned that now then? I know that Multimatic bought the building, didn't they? No, no, they didn't. No? The building. The building uh, is. 
well, let's not go into that. Um, the they bought the IP and and the rights to develop, to supply supply to supply spares and and the IP of the chassis, which became Multimatic chassis. But I don't actually know who bought the name. There's someone operating out of the building as well. Really? Yes. I thought that was uh, mothballed. It's it's been reopened. We'll have to do some digging. Well, I can pop over. Out. It's only half an hour away. But it's, it's 12 miles away from where I'm sitting now. Mostly at 30 miles an hour, though, isn't it? No, no it's straight down the A14. Okay. It's, it's all 70. Uh, an Italian journalist uh, asked if they considered uh, buying the rights to the name Andrea Moda. <laughs> and? Team spokesman said there are limits. Well, I've just looked it up, and Lola still exists. LolaCars.co.uk... Uh, and the Lola Group Holdings Limited, uh, who are list their addresses, the Hop Exchange in Southwark Street, London, um, have. Oh, I know where that is. Yeah. Um, Just by Bubba Market. Yeah. Uh, although it hasn't been updated for a while because they're still talking about the Tusk series in the USA, but it is showing today's date. Uh, uh, there's a composites department, a heritage department, and a technical centre. So there you go. It still exists. Only uh, a majority uh, passed that uh, resolution to change oh. their name to Racing Point. It's Howard Davidson. Uh, Howard Dawson, sorry. Howard Dawson, who owns it now. There we go. Lola Group Holdings, apparently. Uh, that, is, that is correct. It was a majority of 22 to 2. Okay. John uh, McCarthy says, On a bike... A deity on a bike, he says. Four days for a vote. Kind of sums up the FIA, that, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, let's do this one next, shall we? So, oh, ha- oh. oh, hang on, hang on. Kill that, kill that. I thought, you, are we not going to talk about Brabham getting back into Formula One as well? Not at this point. Oh, OK. In fairness, it's only the Brabham name. That's the Crown Court. Uh, theme. Nice yeah. bit of 70s British TV reference there for those of you who didn't know. It's, um, it's barely appropriate anymore. Because, well, uh, we've, gone, we've gone beyond the Crown Court now, with this, if it's what I'm thinking of. We're, we're going to go, be going back to the uh, Court of Appeal now. Are we? Yes. And we haven't got a jingle for that, have we? No. I don't think there was a TV programme called uh, Court of Appeal. Uh, have we got uh, a or song by somebody called? Have we got a song by s- somebody that has the word extradition in it? Uh, I'm sure I could find one if you give me enough time. Okay. Uh, this is about VJ Malia, who really shouldn't concern it because he's not involved in Formula One anymore. Now that uh, Racing Point is Racing Point, uh, but he has announced that he will appeal against uh, the UK Home Secretary's decision to back the. Uh, court's decision to extradite him to India. Uh, the 63-year-old liquor baron's extradition was approved by Sajid Javid on Sunday. Uh, meanwhile, India's enforcement directorate told a special court in Mumbai yesterday that it had no objection to liquidation of Vijay Malia's confiscated assets by consortium of banks. Uh, the consortium, led by the State Bank of India, are claiming over a billion dollars. Yes... Uh, 
Malia said, After the decision was handed down on December the 10th by Westminster Magistrates Court, I stated my intention to appeal. I could not initiate the appeal process before a decision by the Home Secretary. Now I will initiate the appeal process. Good for them. So that's going back to it. And, and he's still in the UK then, is he? Yes, yeah. Okay. Seems reasonable. Uh, tyres? Oh, and the tyres? Yes. Is this a Pirelli story? How did you guess? Pirelli did really well at Bathurst at the weekend in very, very hot conditions. Nobody had any tyre issues. That's good. Mm. It was very good. Now, remember this year they're simplifying the Formula 1 tyres. Are they? Yes. What, they're all going to be round and black? Uh, They're going to be hard, medium or soft. Yes, but they're not, are they? Because they're they're hard, medium and soft. pre-season test. Uh, because at the pre-season test, they're called C1, C2, C3, C4 and C5. Now, that doesn't sound like three compounds to me. No, but that's the point, isn't it? They're going to be... You will call them hard... When I say we. The commentary teams have been told they've got to call them hard, hard medium and soft at the weekend. But that might not be consistent throughout the season. You could start off with C1, C2 and C3, which would be... Soft, medium and hard. Hard, medium and soft. Hard, C1 medium and soft. Hardest. Right, okay. Hard, medium and soft the first weekend. The second weekend, hard could be C2, medium could be C3 and soft could be C4. Yeah. And then the weekend after that, hard could be C3, medium could be C4 and soft could be C5. C1 is the hardest of the five compounds they'll be testing in Barcelona. It has a white sidewall. Mm-hmm. C2 is slightly softer. What colour sidewall do you think that has? That's got white as well, but with brackets around it. Uh, it also has a white sidewall, yes. Uh, C3 is softer still. What colour is that one? Uh, is that white? No, that one's yellow. Oh, OK. That's the medium. All right. Or hyper-medium. Uh, C4 uh, is red. Right. With brackets. And C5 is uh, also red, but without brackets. <sighs> So that's made it all far more, far less complicated, hasn't it? No. No. I'm sure they'll get there. Well, do you know what? It's starting to make the old system look sensible. What, with mega hard and things like that? Hmm. Uh, there is a song called Extradition, by the way. It was by the band Pavement. From there's, a few the s- there's, 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 a, there's the Extradition song, which is an old Irish folk song, but I'm sure we probably couldn't play that here either. Uh, I think Pavements is the only one that uh, was ever released commercially. Okay. Um, shall we see if we can get a guest up? Yes. Um, oh, yeah, see, that's very good. I um, heard a phone ringing. Well, let's hopefully say good evening to Andrew Cotton, the editor of Racecar Engineering. Hello, Andrew. Good evening. Oh, wow. Can you hear me all right? Yes, can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Thank you for joining us uh, on relatively short notice tonight, Andrew. Uh, Let's talk a bit of technical sports car news and, and talk the H24 team, which seems to be coming of age. They've they've sort of been a a bit of a coming together of a couple of teams, Green and H24 and... Hello. And Hybrid. Can you still hear me? Hello. Hello. Can you still hear me, Andrew? Hello. Yes, we can hear you. 
Hello, Andrew. Can you still hear us? Hello, Andrew. Can you still hear us? Oh, oh, there you are. Hello. Yes. Um, age 24 and the new team, uh, a, a yes. joining up of two teams, effectively, and hydrogen as a fuel. Tell us a bit about that. Well, they've made uh, huge steps since uh, the first car uh, did its demonstration runs at Le Mans. Um, and I think it's interesting that uh, they're going down the hydrogen route. I think that this is a, a good alternative to electric that uh, governments and successive uh, politicians seem fairly wedded to. Um, it's quite nice to see that there's another, uh, another solution out there that actually racing is looking at. Will this... I presume the hope is that this will drive forward, pun absolutely intended, um, the development of hydrogen streetcars and and make it more acceptable uh, and put it more in the public eye, much in the same way as as other racing uh, has as racing has done for other technologies, Andrew. Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, if we, we try and use racing as a test bed of technology. Um, I think the the costs are now getting to a stage where that's quite difficult to achieve it. But it's nice to see that you've still got uh, small teams with a dedicated uh, technology and, and a way of uh, proving it in race conditions. Um, you know, if another manufacturer picked it up and, you know, really ran with it, as BMW has done in the past, mm. uh, pushing the the hydrogen um, as, a, as a fuel rather than in a fuel cell, uh, I think that it it's a much nicer way of of going forward. So I think you know with this with this drive towards pure electric and plug-in electric, um, that doesn't it doesn't seem to me to be the right way forward as a sole path. And and that's what we're talking about with H24 Racing Team, are we? With hydrogen as effectively a pump fuel rather than in a fuel cell. Uh, as far as I understand, it was a fuel cell. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, we, we've uh, run a feature on it in uh, this edition of Race Car Engineering, uh, but we've also run a piece from Steve Sapsford, uh, and he was looking at the future of hydrogen and looking to raise the issue of other fuels that could be part of the solution in the future. Um, you know, as far as he's concerned, and, and we agree with him, uh, the only part of the CO2 emissions that are looked at are the emissions that the car puts out itself but in terms of the build uh, the uh, sourcing of the materials and the recycling and everything else is completely ignored by the government when you put the or the successive governments all around the world so when you look at hydrogen as an alternative then actually it's a very good solution to it what, what? um lo- lower co leo, lower yeah. co2 emissions in the in the build and in the running i think electric in the long term is uh, more efficient, but in the short term, because of the excessive amount of CO2 that's needed to build a car, then uh, the actual CO2 production will go up the more electric cars you produce. Yeah, and there's there's an issue, isn't there, with the sourcing of the heavy metals for for for, for batteries. Uh, the other thing exactly. about hydrogen is that whether it's used in a, a hydrogen fuel cell or whether it's used um, in other ways, and of course we have seen an Aston Martin running on hydrogen do a, a lap of the Nordschleife, uh, uh, what, three or four years ago now. So this is well, technology... it, raced, it, it raced in the race, didn't it? it yes, it just did. Just a lap. Yeah, it did a full lap under hydrogen and it raced hydrogen assisted for the whole race. The, the thing about that I see about hydrogen that I think could catch on here is that effectively the infrastructure for hydrogen already exists in that we are used to driving into places, putting a nozzle into something and filling it up within a few minutes or seconds rather than 
30 minutes, 40 minutes or an hour. Well, exactly. Um, I mean, you know, if you have to do electric and you have to put in all the infrastructures to charge your cars, um, you know, it's a huge investment. And it's something that while you can do it in uh, over short distances or particularly in towns and cities, it's not something that's good for a longer term or a longer journey. So hydrogen using existing infrastructure and existing petrol stations and our own mentality of filling up your car is is a much better idea. Uh, there's a there's an article about all this in uh, in the current edition of race car engineering. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're looking at hydrogen as a as an alternative fuel. We're not we're not putting electric out of the equation completely. No, indeed. But all, we're, all we're saying is that there there are other alternatives in there, and another one is uh, the um, the growing of fuels. You yes. Know, the the biofuels and and so on and. We need to look at those as well as a as a potential solution, um, particularly in the shorter term. Uh, David Faulkner has just tweeted in at Specutainment. He's listening live tonight, Andrew, and says, "Finally, someone else who understands emissions need to be considered for the whole process, not just what comes out of the tailpipe of the end product." Thank you, uh, at Racecar Engineering. Um, BMW, you mentioned BMW, they've been very keen yep. on hydrogen for a while and, and have been trying to push the technology and have, have really been stymied at, at every every turn. Um, is this something they're going to be interested in as well? I'm relatively certain. I spoke to uh, Jens Markart at Spa last year and asked him to do a... Head of BMW I... um, Motorsport. Yeah, I was talking to him and asking whether we could actually do a feature on this hydrogen car that... Uh, his hydrogen prototype and he said no and then gave me a wink and said you'll find out why and then sure enough at uh, at Le Mans they talked about hydrogen and so I presume that they're going to use that technology and they're going to look very carefully at uh, entering whatever class they have. Um, I hope that Le Mans will open up Garage 56 to allow uh, new technologies and I'm not just talking about hydrogen or pure electric uh, but also the biofuels and give people the chance to come with these new technologies and prove them in competition with the hope that, you know, a major manufacturer can come along, pick it up and run with the ball. Uh, And that might be, in point of fact, uh, the only way we see BMW in Le Mans in the near future, the transition season and the movement of the WEC to a, uh, a split calendar over to the back end of one year and the beginning of another could see them pulling the plug a little bit early uh, on their factory GTE Pro program. They only committed for two years to start with, Andrew. Uh, and if they went to two years, that would leave them halfway through a season. Uh, Rumours abounding that the final WEC round of the current season, which is Le Mans this year, could well be BMW's last. Yeah, we have heard that they haven't renewed their contract with MTEC to run the cars in the WEC. That's not to say that they won't, but we understand that they haven't yet. Um, so we have to wait and see what comes of that, whether they uh, whether they choose to complete the next season and go into Le Mans next year or, or whether they actually pull out and, and just concentrate on a North American programme. Uh, and their problem is clearly one of, uh, of funding because the decision to fund that two-year programme was made before the WEC went to the, the transition season. We we look almost certainly now as if Ford will do the same thing, at least in the WEC, and that the GTs in factory form, at least, will also be making their final appearance in the WEC at, uh, at Le Mans 
this yeah, year we sp- now. We spoke about this uh, just before Christmas, didn't we? Mm. That, uh, that there is a problem in GTE and it's not you know, uh, anything to do with the cars or the competition. It is solely to do with the fact that these programmes are not cast in stone. They are expensive to run. Um, and we need to look very carefully at the future of uh, production-based racing, um, t- such as GTLM or GTE. The, the uh, That said, Porsche still very bullish about it. Uh, and uh, uh, Mr. Kamelka saying that there's there's absolutely no chance of Ford pulling out uh, of of the GTE racing side of things, and they are they want to keep going. So, what is the future for GTE, and and how much Andrew necessarily might that be tied in with where the 2020 P1 regs go for certain manufacturers? Well, that is the question. I mean, the the manufacturers are looking at uh, the future because they they all know they're they're sitting at the table. They're all deciding the regulations, and they know the cars inside out. And they make it almost impossible for new manufacturers to come in, such as Lamborghini and McLaren. So they really need to get the regulations right. They need to make it accessible, and they need to essentially throw all of their learning out of the window and mm. and allow a new manufacturer a chance to come in. Uh, usually we see new manufacturers coming in with a change of regulations uh, because they see an opportunity to get in at the ground level. Um, so the manufacturers uh, are aware of this issue and they know that they need to make a, uh, a different decision, um, but they haven't yet started those discussions. When they do, it may be that they go for a GT3 platform, although we know the issues with that. Uh, there are no technical regulations mm. in place for that category and it's all balance of performance. Um, and so they're not that keen on that. But in terms of the proposed hypercar regulations, we have to wait and see what happens with that. If they come out and they are as expensive or more expensive than a GTLM program, but you're going for an over, overall uh, win, can the manufacturers justify it? You know, are we looking at a, a economic slowdown around the world that will stop people buying yeah. these cars? Or that, that, you know, we have to consider a whole range of factors that aren't necessarily uh, obvious. Yeah, and and talking of the LMP 2020, the so-called hypercar regulations, uh, Orica uh, talking about the tie-up between Rebellion and potentially uh, a B a boutique sports car manufacturer, which is uh, as yet unnamed and perhaps not even identified yet. Uh, there is interest for these hypercar regulations with people like. Um, Glickenhaus and now Origa Brabham we know now want to go GTE racing bizarrely Um, where does it stand on that things have gone a bit quiet uh, and what what's the next step for the ACO and the WEC in terms of 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 getting support and moving forward on the 2020 regulations well this is the issue Um, as I said if you have a new set of regulations normally you get people willing to jump onto the uh, onto the bandwagon and, mm. and get in on the ground floor. The fact that there's been nothing said by any manufacturer yet um, suggests that they are going to go. They they are thinking about it. We know that they're thinking about they it, are. but but uh, none of them have committed yet, and that must be a worry. I would suggest that by the time we go to Sebring, after we've had the Geneva show, where sometimes we have yeah. uh, manufacturers making announcements, um, and we go to Sebring when the WEC and IMSA race together. Uh, we would need to see commitment from 
one or more major manufacturers and we're not hearing great things at the moment okay. but that's not to, that's not to say that they won't change um why have toyota not committed yet surely they were the they were the shoe in uh, and am, am i I'm I'm not reading anything into it, but clearly other people will. Are, are they waiting for someone else to jump before they commit? Because obviously, if they do commit, being the honourable company that we know them to be, having effectively rescued the first year of the WEC when they weren't meant to be there, when Peugeot uh, pulled out after getting what they wanted in terms of a world championship, being an honourable company, Toyota Gazoo Racing, is it because they don't want to get into it and then find out that they're the only ones in there well i don't think there'd be any harm if they did announce that they were going to do it and nobody else came um you know they, i don't think that they'd lose any face so i don't understand why they mm. haven't yet announced it it's um, odd one isn't it it is a strange one but uh you know as i said there, there, there are other things that are that are going on in the background the question is if you have the glickenhouses and the um and the koenigseggs of this world and they are racing in a world championship um is that enough for the world championship to survive uh you know will, will other people come on board normally you'll see you know if there's a slow start that other people will, will start to come in if they see that there's a value in racing and i think that's ultimately what the aco and fia have to trace what is the value of lmp1 is it a hypercar or is it a cheap le mans win or a cheap <laughs> world championship or you know w- what is it and they have firmly nailed their colors to the mast of hypercar guided by the manufacturers who sat around the table and uh, drove them towards this so you would expect now that the manufacturers have steered them into this direction they're sat there but nobody's committing and so that's why i say it's strange that nobody has said anything but i don't know exactly you know without talking to the manufacturers i think certainly for the others for the british manufacturers they're waiting for one to announce and then i think others will make Mm. their decisions very quickly so i suspect if if aston martin were to announce then you'd see mclaren coming in quite quickly or maybe vice versa um but they have to they have to coordinate and they have to be sure that the budgets are right that the technical uh, regulations are tight enough that uh, the championship is being run in a way that they get a return on their investment and that it delivers everything that such a huge investment would require. Uh, Andrew, thanks for joining us. I know it was a bit on the fly tonight, but a cracking line. Could hear you, you perfectly. Uh, and uh, I'm now it's not, not bad. Not bad for the middle of a rugby field in Hitchin, is it? I was about, <laughs> I was I was about to say I can hear some um, sport going on in the background. Who's winning? Uh, no, my son is training with uh, with Hitchin at the moment, and uh, yeah, I, I don't think anybody's winning, but nobody's covered in blood yet, so we're doing all right. Well, it's not a proper rugby match then in that case. What happens in the front row of the scrum stays in the front row of the scrum. <laughs> yeah, he's working on that. <laughs> Cheers, Andrew. Speak to all you right. soon, mate. Take care. Andrew Cotton, uh, editor of Racecar Engineering, joining us live from the middle of a rugby field, uh, as he mentioned in uh, in Hitchin. he's actually on the sidelines. Well, uh, well, uh, I don't know. It sounded like it was going on around him, didn't it? It was pretty... Uh, I could hear a bit of shouting and calling and over to here and grub a kick over there sort of thing. That was quite impressive, that. Amazing what you can do with a, a mobile phone. Uh, quick tweet on that before we move on, because we've got to move on to our next guest. Um, the Real Slim Glakey that's fantastic, has tweeted at Specutainment, speaking about BMW, um, is BMW's commitment not necessarily directly corrected to, uh, uh, oh, sorry, is BMW's commitment directly cor- 
correlated to their success or lack thereof. Can't help but think that they have, if they have, uh, if they had given the ACO their activation money, their BOP would have been more like Ford's. Oh, you are such a cynic. BMW are very good at waiting until the last possible moment to commit to anything. If you look at uh, all those years in world touring cars when Mm. Andy Prio was winning year after year, Mm. it wasn't until after the season was over that they committed to doing anything at all the next season. Well, sometimes much later than that. Well, and, and don't forget, they are very good as well at getting their representatives on all kinds of steering committees and technical boards for various racing that they don't participate in at the current moment in order, and the, the World Touring Cars and ETCC, European Touring Cars, perfect example there, Tim, they've steered, they weren't in it, and they steered the regulations round uh, to uh, a set of, technical regulations that they knew that they had a very good package for and uh, and that's to me that's that's all part of the game uh, thanks to andrew again for joining us tonight we'll have more discussion on that in the next few weeks i am absolutely sure series 14 episode 5 of midweek motorsport let's take another guest very early morning for this next one he was with me at the weekend at the Liquid Molly Bathurst, 12 hours. Uh, let's say good morning, as it is to him, to Richard Creel. Richard, how are you, mate? Uh, yeah, good, good. How are you? I think I've recovered. Have you recovered yet from last week? No, not even slightly. Not even slightly. <laughs> it's going to take me a month to get over that. An absolute month. How it's, did you get back home? I'm assuming you're back home, all right, by the fact we're speaking now over the internet rather than in person like last week. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, two flights, uh, Sydney to Singapore, Singapore back home. Um, shared one of those, actually both of them, but one quite closely because he was sitting next to me with Andy Suchek, and there's a story oh, that's developed yeah. over, over the last few days. Confirmed to me that he did push the wrong button twice. Doesn't know how he did it. Mm. Um, but you know what? As I said to him, I, I ran some numbers when I was at Singapore, funny enough. I ran some num- numbers on his lap times in that last stint. He was consistently, his lap average was at least a second to two seconds quicker than anybody else out there. So I tried to tell him that to, to sort of make things better. He went, that only makes things worse. I went, why? He said, well, yeah, if I hadn't lost the 41 seconds, I'd have been right in the mix, wouldn't I? I went, oh, yeah. 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 Uh, sorry about that. No, um, I, it, I think Bentley, once again, won more fans than they lost, though, that by by not winning the race. Yeah. But their attitude and their performance and the, the way they go motor racing, they, they won more fans than they, uh, than they gave up. So uh, they can hold their heads high. I've 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 got a lot of respect for how Mr. Suchek uh, dealt with himself over that. I, mm. I did circulate a picture of the steering wheel as well on Twitter. Now his instant response to that was, "It's been the same for the last three years." So again, he wouldn't have any uh, excuses made for him. But my goodness me. Um, anyway, by the by, um, that I mean, that, we that would have just been the the. The cherry on top of the cream on an already very rich cake that we had if Bentley had been in the the mix as well. But they were for so long. I mean, I said on the broadcast, Krilzy, I think that was one of my three best races ever uh, in, Mm. uh, in, in the time that I've watched endurance racing. I've had a bit of time to reflect. And I'm going to say I think that's the best endurance race flag to flag that I have ever watched. Yeah, it's right up there for me. Um, just the, uh, and and where 
where I've been trying to break it down in my head over the last couple of days to work out what made it so good. And and there, the best thing about it was that there wasn't just one thing that made it so good. It was a, a like all good endurance races, it was a a, a a joining of a whole different group of scenarios that made it so great. It was the record number of consecutive green flag laps at over 110. Now, halfway through last year's race, who would have thought we'd ever be talking about that yep. when we're in the 431st safety car period for 65 laps or whatever it was? Um, it was the warring that was going on early in the race with and Augusto Farfa springs to mind as yep. being fairly resolute in his defense of what was the race lead, yep. which backed up what we were talking about, about it was a track position race and that you needed to lead that motor race as it turned out to be. Um, and then there was the fact that after four hours and five minutes of green flag running, just before that last safety car on lap 298, the top seven cars, the seven cars on the lead lap were covered by 65 seconds, yep. less than a, just over a minute. And they're all still within very much a chance of winning that. And even if we didn't have that last safety car, that was still don't get me wrong, Thomas. I'm glad we did. But it was still going to be a great race. And I'm sure that it would have been a pretty compelling finish based on what we've learned afterwards because that Aston Martin was in real pain. And not only did they have no tyres, but they had no brakes at the end as well, we've since found out. Did that, you see um, the brake parts? The answer is yes. Oh, yeah. and, the, and the answer is, well, you shouldn't have because they should have been well, buried saw, inside the caliper. Yeah, saw the backing plates and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, so just and, – and then and then the strategies. And you had you had half of the top ten doing one thing, the other half on the – doing a completely different thing strategy-wise from Phil. And then you had Porsche roll the dice – and go, no, do you know what? Eight hours into the race, we're going to not pit under a rare safety car. And in a race when there's 20 safety car periods, you can take that gamble because you're likely to get another one. But in a race with all that green flag running, to roll the dice the way Porsche did and to stay out, that's that move won them the race. Well, it kept the the other, there the was gave- two things there that I thought was interesting. It kept the second Bentley from getting back on the lead lap, which ultimately Correct, which might have huge. been very, very important. Um, mm. The second thing was... They they were banking on a race running just under 300 or around about 300 laps, not the mm-hmm. 300 and what was it, 10, 11 that we that we eventually, end, 312, yeah. yeah, 312 that we ended up run, running. And those those last 10 laps, 12 laps, could have killed it, could have killed it for them. Yeah. And I, I remember saying yeah. to you guys when we were re, we had to keep recalibrating everything that we're doing. And fair play to Magic Finger Chad down on the uh, the Pirelli bunker there trying to keep up with everything that was going on. But we were recalibrating every five or ten laps that we didn't get another safety car. And it was changing mm. the strategies or the potential strategies. But as I said at the time, you know, every green lap now that goes by for Porsche is a, is a one they don't want to see because it's ruining their strategy. And they needed, they needed a little bit of help. And my goodness, they got it. But, I mean, fantastic for Matty Campbell. The amount of racing drivers, by the way, who have spoken to me afterwards and said, he'd have never got past me there, but neither of us would have finished either. Uh, I think yeah. you've got to say fair play to Jake Dennis, who had a stellar weekend. He might not have won the race, but my goodness, he's won some hearts and minds and he's advanced his... Uh, international reputation and his reputation in Australia by, I don't know, a factor of 10, 20, a million? Uh, I don't know. Easy. I I likened it the other day to what uh, Katsumasa Chio did after in 2015. Yeah. And and in 2014, Chio came to Australia a complete unknown 
Um, he was in the Nissan when it crashed at the top of the mountain with what was then the Clearwater Racing Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Um, a very emotional interview, thousand apologies, dishonor, all that kind of stuff. Um, and everyone sort of gave it a, a look and went, oh, well, away we go. Came back the next year, um, was brilliant in qualifying, brained them in the final two laps, won the race, Chio's the hero. Um, and that kick-started his Nismo career yeah. um, because that was the the showcase for him on a global stage to go, oh, look, how good's, how good's Chio's son? And now he races Super GT and he races GT3 cars around the world for them and um, he's done brilliant things. And I'm convinced that Jake Dennis will do the same because um, he's debut at the mountain. The... He's debut yeah, at the mountain. That, Extraordinary. Nobody was... comes there the first time and puts that kind of performance in. That was it was otherworldly. Yeah, from from the shootout right the way through. And the way they hustled their car into the top ten shootout to start, the lap he did. Now, irrespective of what happened with them getting rubbed out from yeah, the yeah, shootout yeah. or not, that that doesn't matter. That that's completely beside the point. Um yeah, no, they're just just terrific performance all around by all three of those guys. Vaxivier and Kirchhoff were brilliant too, and but probably I feel for those two guys because they did a really stout job in the race. Mm. But all everyone was, could talk about is poor old Jake at the end getting mowed down by Porsche on brand new rubber. Um, but Matt Matt Campbell's drive, yeah, it's probably appropriate that he was in the car, the young Aussie international that so many people here have got on board his story over the last mm. five years from coming from a family with no money. His granddad was supporting him through. Um, he impressed in a one-off Porsche drive and uh, a group of backers, including Andy McElroy from McElroy Racing, got behind him and said, we're going to put you in a race car. First year of Carrera Cup was tough. Had to learn how to win races. Brain them in the second year. Got the Porsche shootout. Won it. Super Cup. Porsche Junior. And the list and, and won Le Mans in his first full year with the factory and GTE AM car. The story is remarkable, yeah. um, and he's Australia. You know, we we're getting smoked by the Kiwis in young drivers doing things at the moment, but he, he's Australia's young driver going places globally. Well, so I, for I, him I, to be in that car is is an enormous story for the sport, and it resonates brilliantly here in the storylines that have come out of it. Especially as you know, when you've got a manufacturer fully engaged in the sport like Porsche are, yes, they go very very hard in promoting their success so the net result is that the last four days the twitter conversation hasn't stopped and Good. the media hasn't stopped because porsche's still been going real hard at hey look we we finally won Bathurst, and how good is this Matt Campbell kid? Well, and Porsche, in fairness, have backed his career as well, Porsche Australia, and, and he's come up through yep. their ladder system. So I'm sorry, anybody who wants to criticise that, you're wrong. They've backed the lad. He's come up through the ladder system. He's done a job. I, I said to Mark Beretta at the end of the Seven Sports Show, when he said, how good is he? I said, I think he is, uh, in terms of motorsport exports, he's, he's the next big thing as far as yeah, Australia I- is concerned. I, I think he'll be our next world champion. Mm-hmm. And now bearing in mind, we've got Daniel Ricciardo, who's no slouch, but is going to be encumbered by not the most competitive Formula One car for the next, I don't know, one, two seasons until Renault get their act together. Um, I, I think Matt will win a world championship before before he does. Now, yep. whether that's a GTE one or if Porsche jump back in when Hypercar comes in or he goes and does something else, I don't know. But... Um, yeah, he's he's a super talent. Great was he, driving. Was, and like, he, was he a little bit lucky not to get pinged for the, the move on the BMW at the chase? It well, could have gone either I, way. You know, I've thought more about that than anything else that happened in that whole race because that was the defining moment. He had to get past that BMW then and there. And if he 
if he wasn't past the BMW when the safety car came out about 30 seconds later, then he may have spent another three laps trying to get past him on the restart. Then he might not have got mm-hmm. to uh, Marchiello quick enough. And then he may have only got to Jake Dennis on the final lap of the race. And it may have been a completely different scenario because if that McLaren wasn't in the way down Conrad, when it, that he would have sailed straight back past Matt in a straight line because the Aston was so good and Matt would have had to keep waiting. So all these scenarios play out. The best thing for me, John, about that was that Chaz Mostert came out on Speed Cafe, local news website, after the race and said, I would have been disappointed if Matt was penalised right. because it was a good hard move at the end of the race. Well, fair play I'm okay you. with it, 100%. Yeah. I think if I'm, if I'm very honest, I can make a case either way. I don't have to. I'm not the race director. Um, but... If I'm very honest, the only criticism I will have for that is where the decision wasn't made straight away and it was postponed till after the race. And I, I, I thought that was a bit average, if I'm honest. I thought you either make the decision and have the courage of your convictions, whichever way it is, or th- there's no decision. And, I mean, as it came, there yeah. was no decision, there was no F- NFA. But there was that... Yeah, they, they had to make the call to... Get both sides of the story, I think. So they wanted they wanted to be as fair to the BMW team in particular as they could. Mm. Um, and, and to be honest, I mean, with my PR hat on, uh, waiting till fifteen minutes after to go. Oh, by the way, it's all clear. Well, it was you know that's kind of cool because it's quite funny to see everyone's reaction and the relief. And uh, but but it, it's the fairest possibly way they okay. could treat it. And and the the fact it was fifteen minutes to go on the race probably. You know, if it was two hours in, then absolutely they would have made a call straight away. But 15 minutes to go, a lot going on. Um, At least we didn't have to wait know. till October like we did after Le Mans one year to find out who'd won exactly. a particular, exactly. particular race. Uh, the other point I've got to make, and Joe Bradley and I have talked about this long and hard. He stayed up through the night uh, and watched the race, as many people did, uh, in the UK, thanks to the awesome uh, streaming uh, facilities that... Uh, uh, in video and audio uh, that was provided by the organizer again this year. And by the way, actually, before I get on to what Bradley says, I completely echo your comments. Um, we have a TV team in the guys that work on that particular event who are absolute racing enthusiasts. And despite the fact, despite the fact we had so few safety cars, we ran nearly an hour at the end of that race on a commercial, terrestrial free-to-air yes. broadcast in Australia without commercial interruption. Yeah. Yeah. Could, could, would, and as good as NBC is doing with US sport, I, I, no, don't, the I don't know if no. that had happened in America. No. <laughs> no. Not even slightly. <laughs> so uh, no. kudos to those guys for that. And I'll hear no criticism uh, about what went on there because you and I, obviously, we're in a privileged position. We can hear what's going on in the truck. We're party to what's going on. And we've sat in the production meetings and we know how good all the guys are and what they're trying to achieve. Um, and, I, and I thought they did it pretty well. Um, anyway, back to Bradley. Bradley says, if you want to teach somebody about racecraft, just play them. The Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hours from 2019, start to finish. There was so little bad driving. There was so much great back and forth, up and down the field. You said it in the preview when we walked up and down the pit lane. You thought it was about the right number of cars on the track. You thought it was about the right mix of classes. Yes. Man, that apps, I mean, everybody played that part. Everybody played that part, including, by the way, Race Control, who lets 
things developed, kept green flag as long as they could, only went to a full course yellow for the uh, AMG E63 safety car when they had to. Every, everybody played their part, but the driving was, and the racing, the racing was outstanding. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? I mean, that that move Campbell made on March yellow at the end to grab second, that's that's one of the best moves I've ever seen at Bathurst. And and we talked about it during the race as well. That Carrera Cup those yeah, well, it was, but but those two bottom corners, Murray's and Hell Corner, they're the two most innocuous corners on the racetrack, but they are the most critical corners of the entire lap because they're two corners where you can actually overtake. Whereas on other race, on other parts of the the twenty three turns that that place has got, it's very difficult to find your way past. And as full commitment, maximum attack, everything grabbled up to get the thing stopped and turned at the elbow when he got down the inside of the Aston. That move where he sold the dummy on the outside, Marciello blocked him off, and then Matt just absolutely sent it and committed the fact that the thing would turn in because he had that little bit of extra front grip with the new Pirellis, got the thing to the apex, and the Porsche was so good out of slow corners that he could fire up the hill. That was, in terms of critical race moves, it wasn't as spectacular as the one for the lead, but it was just as, if not more important. But we saw that all day. How many cars did the Bentleys pass at turn two? Oh. Like this, the drag race up the hill, those things with so much bottom end torque, and we just haul the mail going up the hill and just sail around the outside or sail down the inside, no matter what kind of defense was being offered or um, what battling was going on. But there were moves like that all day. But you're right, it was so hard and competitive. But race control kept the gun holstered all day. Um, there were, I think, two bad sportsmanship flags over the entire duration of the motor race. Yep. Um, one to a lap car and one to Farfus when he's defending yep. probably was a little bit too yes. over-exuberant. But, but that just goes back to the nature of the motor race in that it was so fast and so quick that you had to have that track position because if you went a lap down, like the 107 Bentley, you were stuffed. That, that was your day. Chris. So you'd never get that lap back. No, no, Absolutely. Right, Creelsey, away from all of that, the event itself, um, I loved town to track, t- track to town rather. The whole week for me worked particularly well. How has it gone mm. over? Or t- Matty Campbell, Porsche win, that's obviously garnered a lot of the headlines. But has yep. it, is it now, can we honestly say that the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 Hours has captured the hearts of motorsport fans in Australia and and possibly even now broken out of that because of the network television, the commitment by Channel 7 and, and put the, the week in perspective um, with with some numbers. Record crowd, record camping. Have we had the TV figures yet? What could you tell us? Uh, early TV figures are in. Um, they're, they're sort of obscured because streaming was up. So the numbers from the, the global reach are up and uh, unfortunately, from a from a terrestrial TV point of view, we're competing with an Australia Test match. Yeah. Now, Australia could be playing Bangladesh in a Test, and a million people will watch. So, that's nothing against Bangladesh, by the way. And it was uh, on the same so network as well. On the same seven network, half, half cricket I, I, now. Ironically, mm. I didn't even mention the cricket once in there. This was my one opportunity to talk about cricket on national television. Didn't do it anyway. Um, Strikers lost that night as well, which is terrible. We're talking about Big Bash now. Yeah. Um, no, look, from, from an event, biggest ever oh, by far, and it, just every year it takes a 5% jump. So it, year on year you look at it and go, oh, maybe that's not a massive jump. But when you go, well, in four years we've grown 25%, yes. that's a significant number. Yes. Um, I'll give you a figure. In 2011 before – actually, let's go the first year you guys came down. So 2013, the three-day event attendance was – 
23,000 people over three days. Yeah. Uh, it was a shade under 50 this year. So with an extra more day than of, 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 uh, one extra, of one extra day on yeah. Thursday, but in four years, the number of campsites sold has more than doubled. Yeah. So two and a half thousand campsites are wow. more than 8,000 people camping there. Um, in the context of Bathurst crowds compared to the October race, it's still not very big. That gets 200,000 over four days. This has 50. So it's a quarter of the size, but that's not the point. It's, it's a completely different market. It's a different race. It attracts some of the same fans, but I think it's a different group. But but from a TV point of view, from a digital, from a streaming and, and all that side, of the numbers that are these days so important to, to quantify, everything is is better than it was. Um, and it's just all pointing in the right direction. To, to, to get to the point and answer your question, is it now a staple? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. It, it's now just acknowledged as – the Australian motorsport season opens at the Bathurst 12 hour. That's Excellent. just the event. And from all the chatter amongst supercars through to global GT stuff, it's just now we're going to Bathurst first and then everything else will follow. Um, and I think when an event gets that, it's like Le Mans is in June, Indy's in May, Bathurst 12 hour is in February, early yep. February. It yep. starts the season. Where you go. Thanks, mate, for getting us involved in the first place and thanks for continuing to bang our drum on the other side of the world. Um, I, I know how much work you put into that on oh, with so many different hats on. It's remar- How many hats? Uh, it's remarkable. Um, say thanks to everybody down there. Uh, I'll see you down there at Easter, of course. But um, do you know what? I'm, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but this is absolutely true. I'm already counting the days to next year's race because I'm thinking... Oh my God! What's it going to be like next year? Because everybody's going to want to raise their game, and we've got more new cars well, coming. More, more brands coming. Like, there's a very good chance that Honda might be there because they're yeah. now in Intercontinental GT Challenge. So I'd love to see some NSXs on the mountain. They've got a cult following in this place. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I'll come back to you when the date is. Imagine it'll be the same, but not confirmed yet. We'll we'll lock that in in a couple of weeks and uh, and let you know. But yeah, it's it's exciting, isn't it? it it's now just a staple and. Uh, for all the build-up, for all the hard work, for everything that goes into it, when you sit down on Sunday night with a, a cold, responsible beverage and go, wow, that was just one of the great things I've ever seen, uh, you already sort of get looking forward to going back to the next one, don't you? Cheers, Krelzy. Thanks, mate. Cheers. And there's a six-hour race before next year's 12 Yes, there is. Well. I'll be there. Oh, is he, oh, oh yeah. Sorry, he's good. I'll be there. I'll be there. A uh, quick couple of points from that, Ian McCarthy. The fact that the move on Mostert was decided upon after the race makes it stranger to me that anyone with access to YouTube can see evidence of, of an infringement. Yes, race control neglected to check, being committed. Um, you heard what I said to Krilsey. I I have to say, I thought it should have been dealt with within the, the race. However, I like uh, what Richard said, and it's a fair point. They wanted to check everything, including the onboards and pull the cards from the onboards that weren't necessarily available to uh, the viewers and the TV. Um, so they felt it needed to take a little bit of extra time once everything had calmed down after the finish. And um, there are lots of races and championships mm-hmm. that um, will automatically wait until after the race to review any incident that happens in a certain period of time towards the end of that race um, in Formula 1 the last 30 minutes for example correct it was the last 15 minutes of a race that was bound to kick off uh, at some stage um, as I said you heard what I've just said there 
to Krillzy. If you listen to what we said on the uh, Seven Sport, the Seven Mate feed, and on RS1, uh, I said if it had been me, I would have made a quick decision and either NFA'd it, no further action, or if it was going to be a decision against Matt Campbell. And by the way, I looked at the car afterwards. There was quite a bit of damage to the right front of Matt Campbell's splitter uh, and the right front wing of that car. So the car wasn't as unmarked as Earl Bamba would have had us had, uh, had, had us believe afterwards. But if you were going to make a decision, do it quickly, and then you could have swapped them round behind the safety car and just done a reposition behind the safety car. There was no need for a drive-through. The safety car came out straight afterwards. Nobody got the advantage. Swap them round behind the safety car and let them have at it again. That, to me, would have been the perfect thing to do if they had thought that there was going to be a penalty. You might have got a repeat instant then. Well, uh, yes, indeed. A bit more sports car news. Okay. Andre Lotterer yes. is going to be missing a WEC race in order to do a simulated Don't. test. Don't. He's one of only two drivers who've done all of the WEC races. And he's missing this to have a go on a video game. Yes. Actually, one that's which is not paying true. him very well. Well, in fairness, I know I'm I'm being deliberately um, trying to generate some uh, discussion there. Um, the uh, the issue is uh, is times are changing, I suppose. Apparently, I've uh, sorry. Ian McCarthy says sorry. He says uh, I was talking not about the Mostert roof, but the pit infringements by the 912 crew. Ah, uh, yes, because the 911 tr- crew, the fueler scraped his foot across the grill on the front of the car, and the 912 had been doing that earlier on, but got away with it, and they didn't review all of the YouTube, uh, all of the TV footage, um, because that was available and was tweeted. Uh, so, in fact, Ian's absolutely right. There should have been a pit penalty called on the 912 for working on the car while it was being fueled. It wasn't. They got away with one, uh, and that's it. Uh, going back to Lotra. Yes, go on. Uh, he's going to be replaced by a driver who made his Formula Ford 1600 debut only last weekend. Young unknown, then, eh? Yeah. Matthias Besch. Yes, that's right. He was at the mountain. Yes, that's why he had to do a Formula Ford 1600 race, because he wanted to learn the track. Oh, really? Yes. I wonder what he's going to be going back for then. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, just before... Is, have you got anything else? Uh, still to come. All right, just before... Who's the other driver? Don't look it up, everybody. Tweet, at Speculatement. Who's the other driver? Other than Andre Lotterer, there's two drivers to this point who've done all the WEC races. Who are they? Andre Lotterer... Andre Lotterer will miss Sebring uh, because he is busy with that sim. Uh, I've tuned in late here from Australia. Who was awarded the Spirit of the Race? We'll do that. In the second hour, the real Jim Clayke saying, you mentioned a lesson in racecraft. My, uh, in my opinion, the best display of driving was Marciello in the Mercedes. No tyres left under it. Resisted everything the whole grid could throw. Even Shane Van Giesbergen on new rubber. Amazing defence. Don't disagree with that. It's half-time. Oh, sorry, you... 
Caught me off guard there. <clears throat> it's Midweek Motorsport. And here's what's coming up. In the second hour of tonight's programme, the return of the real Declan Brennan. Yes, he'll be on talking about a number of subjects, including taking Nick Damon's thunder as he talks about the two-wheeled monsters that are motorcycles and motorcycle racing. We'll have more of your tweets as well, at Specutainment, and uh, some more uh, sports car and motorsport news. Okay, Um, that's all coming up. I suspect there'll be a bit of chat about other things as well. Next up, it's just after nine o'clock, which makes it time for our big interview. And we've got a very special Mid-week guest. Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com. And the big interview tonight then at just after nine o'clock here on Midweek Motorsport. Uh, we say hello to Bruno Senna. Hi, Bruno. How are you? John, I'm great. How are you? I'm very well and delighted to have you on the show with some very good news indeed about your 2019. You're going to be racing with RLR in the European Le Mans series. Tell me a bit about how this has come together. Yeah, this is super cool. Um, got a, a call from uh, from Nick uh, at RLR and he told me that... Uh, they had a, an opportunity for me to join the team uh, to enjoy uh, a little bit of uh, cool racing in Europe. I know that uh, everybody's super excited to get back to to this level of racing there uh, after a very successful MP3 campaign. And, uh, you know, I, lo- I know a lot of good people that are involved in the team. So when he told me about the project, I got excited. And I think it's going to be awesome to get back into the P2 car uh, in parallel with my LMP1 program with the Rebellion Racing. So, yeah, keep myself busy, you know, uh, have lots of going on with McLaren Automotive and then some good racing as well. So really cool year coming up, shaping up in 2019. Tell me a little bit about your two uh, driving partners with the Orica 07 and, and RLR, John Ferrano, uh, we knew about. And just today, in fact... Uh, um, uh, another driver being announced for the team. What do you know about the guys? Yeah, yeah, it's super cool. Uh, John has been uh, has been awesome to uh, put this uh, this thing together. I know that he was looking forward very much to uh, stepping up to the P2 uh, field, which is you know very 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 strong. Lots of platinum drivers, lots of very very high mm. uh, performance uh, teams. So I think it's uh, going to be a very very big challenge, and we're going to help him throughout and make sure that he's up to speed, he's enjoying himself, which is really the most important thing is for him to enjoy himself. And of course, uh, Arjun Mani uh, making a, a very cool move from uh, from single-seater racing to endurance. I think he's going to find it a little bit different. Um, uh, we're going to have to uh, almost uh, teach him the the, uh, the ways of endurance racing where, you know, you're sharing with your teammates, you're having a good uh, a good relationship with your teammates. Normally, their teammate is the one you want to kill, but now is the one you want to help as much as possible. So uh, I've been obviously in touch with Karun, who's uh, who helps him out, and uh, we were very happy about the whole thing. Karun Chandok, of, of course. Um, I, I think it's interesting here. Um, GP3 driver, has development, F1 development uh, driver uh, as well for Arjun as well. I mean... Uh, can you draw on your experience when you came across to endurance racing from from single seaters? Will will that be 
something that you can use to, to help Arjun settle himself into the, the different mindset that you need? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think when I moved, uh, I had a I had a different story, of course. I mm. did one year with uh, Orica uh, in 2009 in endurance racing straight from uh, GP2. And uh, it was, uh, you know, th- at that point I was still sort of pr- planning to go into uh, F1. So it's probably a little bit of a different story uh, from Arjun, of course. I don't know exactly what he's planning for the future, but all experience really helps and uh, he's going to enjoy slightly different experience i'm sure he's going to become more efficient as a driver uh because in endurance racing this really makes a big difference in the races sometimes just being able to say the feel you know how it works mm. and i'm sure that he uh, he's very keen to learn i spoke to karun he's very excited i think we all are because it makes our car very strong with two uh very quick pro drivers and I'm sure that uh, John is gonna is gonna step it up as well, and we're gonna have a, a strong power this year. And John, of course, uh, you you hinted at it, but we should give him credit. He's the reigning LMP3 champion in the European Le Mans series, so he has the advantage of knowing the circuits, Bruno. But how how big a step up do you think it is from a P3 to a P2 car? Yeah, John has done a very good job this year. Uh, the team has done a very good job this year as well with the strategy and everything. I saw I saw how how well they did last year. I was following them. Uh, Rob Garofal was uh, is, is a very good friend of mine, so it was awesome to see them doing well. So um, I think John definitely, apparently he's he's uh, driven the P2 car, and because the P2 car is more stable than the P3 car, uh, I think he's more comfortable in the P2 car uh, incredibly. So hopefully he can, uh, you know, we, we need to find the consistency for sure. We can see the pace getting better. But uh, it's just the consistency of the gentleman driver that we need to, to work on to see how he enjoys the car. And I'm sure that he, he's a clever guy. You know, John has been, he's been uh, racing for a little while. He's enjoying it. So for sure, we have to find the balance of making him enjoy, not stress out too much. Because I've seen quite a few times the, 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 the non-pro drivers getting too stressed because of, you know, sometimes struggling. And that makes them even slower. So we're going to push him. For sure to go fast, but also he has to be comfortable. And I think that's the main thing for John to give his best and to perform at his best. And how much of that is down to you as the senior pro here, Bruno? I mean, we expect you to be good behind the wheel of a P2 car. You were the the, the world champion in, in 2017 in the LMP2 category. But how much of your work goes on outside of the car with the other two guys? Well, it's quite a lot. I mean, I think, yeah... I, I mean, I'm expected to go quick, uh, but at the same time, we all we all have to work together to uh, make sure that everybody's on top of the car. So, you know, the work with them will be a lot of the data. Um, John um, is is experienced with that, so there's no there's no worries in that sense. But uh, it's really important to make sure that they are paying attention to the detail. Uh, I think Arjun obviously is very very uh, uh, good with the data. But at the same time, it's a different sort of mentality. You know, I'm sure that Arjun probably will be crossing over on the pedals a little bit. So he's going to be using a little bit more fuel. Mm. We're going to have to like kind of slowly draw it out and make sure that he's uh, driving more efficiently, taking care of the brake because that can make a big difference in the 24 hour Le Mans and so on and so forth. Uh, so we really did this work outside of the track, outside of the race car. But uh, with these guys, the engineers, you know, we have to make a really close team to make sure that everybody's operating at their best and uh, nobody can be left out. Really, I've seen a lot of uh, endurance drivers who've been struggling a little bit just because 
you know, someone else is comfortable in the car, but they're not, and uh, this doesn't really work for the team. So you're going to be with RLR for the whole of the European Le Mans series, um, which uh, doesn't clash with your P1 duties with Rebellion, as you mentioned. But if I may, um, just ask you about the next uh, event for the WEC in this very long transition season. You with IMSA at at um, I nearly said Daytona there uh, at Sebring uh, coming up, and there's a few changes in the uh, the two. Uh, rebellion cars with you, Neil Yanni, and Matthias Besch in the in one of the cars, and uh, Laurent Thomas, Gustavo Menez, and Natalia Berton in the other. Looking forward to the bumps of Sebring. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be for sure a big challenge in Sebring. Uh, we have um, uh, our car didn't like the bump so much so far this season, but we've been uh, working very hard. The car has a, a nice development program. Uh, lined up for it and uh, it's going to be uh, really tricky to obviously make a change in the team uh, middle in the middle of the season you know mm. especially leading up to <clears throat> to Le Mans but in the end I think uh, the team is making their their best decisions it's a shame that uh, for Andre the uh, there's a the big clash with Formula e there and uh, he's not going to be able to make the race with us but Matthias obviously he's uh, he, you know he's more than than comfortable with the car he's been racing this car for the whole season so he knows what he's doing, and uh, I'm sure that we're going to get the best out of it. Sebring is a bit tough. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's over 10 hours of racing. Mm. These cars are a very, very uh, fast. Uh, I think it's going to be a bit of a funny a funny step from an LMP2 in Sebring. It's going to be in LMP1. It's going to be really tricky. Are you going to be able to drive? Actually, before that, Andre Lotterer has to miss, by the way, for those of you who uh, haven't pe- picked up on this. Um, he's doing a Formula E simulate a test on the same dates as Sebring. There's there's something I never heard myself, thought I'd hear myself saying, Bruno, a racing driver missing a race in his full season drive for a simulator test. That's the way of the world nowadays, isn't it? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's tricky with FE because they do so much simulator work uh, just because the tracks are, are really complex. So if you don't do the simulator work, normally you're really a uh, big step behind. And uh, the team obviously is doing was doing very well last year. This year, it's moving around up and down a little bit. But you see how they are really investing on it. And uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't like to be in Andre's shoes right now, but just because it's a uh, it's a difficult situation to be in to be in between two mm-hmm. programs. Uh, myself uh, for the um, um, for the LMS and the WEC, unfortunately, I have to miss Silverstone. Uh, not- August for the for the LMS just because uh, I should continue the program with the rebellion. So yeah, unfortunately it's going to make it a little bit tight for me to be to make both. But right, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be. Uh, I understand how it is how difficult it is to be between two programs and uh, having to make everything work at the same time. So you can't do the two races at Silverstone even though they're at the same place because they a lot of people might not realize this but they're actually in separate paddocks and that causes a little bit of logistical difficulty for you. Yeah, it's tricky. Um I spoke to to Rebellion about this and uh, they were not so happy about me doing both races Copy. Uh, on the same weekend. Uh, and it's fair enough, you know, they are they 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 got me first, you know, I, I was hired by them first and uh, in the end, you have to, to to honor your your commitments. So yeah, for sure, I would like to have both races, but 
I guess that would have been also pretty tr- pretty tricky. So, you know, we'll see how, how everything goes. But in the end, uh, yeah, just keep pushing, enjoying, and uh, racing both cars the same we can will be a, a big challenge. Only four hours at Silverstone, of course. Well, we're talking about the start of next season. Now, of course, for the WAC, that's another thing for everybody to get their heads around. Only four hours at Silverstone for the WAC on the Sunday uh, I think it's the first weekend in September, last weekend in August, isn't it? Hopefully the weather will be good again, as it has been in the past around there. Um, is that going to make a big difference as, as we look towards next season in the WEC with some longer and shorter races, not just everything being six hours and across the 24 hours of the month? Yeah, I think it changes a little bit for, for everybody because in the end, you know, when this, whenever you go over four or five hours of racing, you start getting a different sort of development of how the race happens, you know, you, on the first uh, two hours, things kind of like are normal. There's a point where the race changes a lot because people end up in different strategies, safety cars, and so on. And uh, when you have a certain amount of time, you know, six, twelve, and especially twenty-four hour races, the race the race really has a way of developing that is very different. So four-hour races, they kind of like fit between. Uh, like a Grand Prix race, a two-hour sprint race, and a pro, and a six-hour endurance race, and I think in four hours it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see how how much you sort of let the race go, kind of run itself, mm. and how much you have to push for your for your result to come as as yeah. uh, as you as you plan it to be. I always think the four-hour races that the ELMS do are, are fantastic because they're I think they're a good t- good amount of time for television and for the the spectators at the track. I understand it's not the same as a six or a twelve or a twenty-four hour race. Of course not, but I do think they've they've worked really well for the ELMS. Um, just a final thought on your WEC before I drag you back to the ELMS and the RLR uh, season to come, which starts by the way uh, on the fourteenth of April at Le Castellet, the ELMS series at Paul Ricard. Um, Sebring then in a P1 car, in a current P1 car, are you going to be able to run flat out? In that, or, you, or will you have to respect the bumps? I, I mean, have you done any testing there? Has the team been across there? There's a there's a Toyota test going on there at the moment, and I know the WEC are going in early, so you can have a crack at it the week before the weekend before race week. But what are you expecting in the Rebellion at, at, at a track that is notoriously difficult for cars? Yeah, it's going to be. Uh, uh, our car has been actually very reliable, which is you know fantastic to say. Our car has been really reliable. The the issues that we've had. Uh, well, last year, but uh, this season have been mostly small issues that uh, are kind of annoying because, you know, <laughs> they shouldn't really cause you too much trouble, but in the end, you know, they, they delay you. Uh, so the car has was a very well-born car, especially when you consider how young the car was when we when it made a debut in uh, in the first race of the season in WEC last year in Spa. Uh, so Sebring should be okay for us in terms of reliability. Uh, the, car is, the car is doing well in that way. The one thing that the car still, you know, needs a little bit more work is on the damping side, which is something we've got planned before Sebring. There's a there's a full seven post rig test, so the car is going to be uh, hopefully much more, much more, much better behaved when we hit the, the big bumps at Sebring. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. You know, mm-hmm. Sebring is a cool track. Everybody enjoys that that, that track. is so difficult to master. So really, um, it's going to be a question of trying to to make make the car nice to drive for us and then really pushing for the for the the 10 hours the odd, the 10 odd hours 
Yeah, and the P2s that have raced in uh, IMSA in the past, the damping thing, it's interesting that you bring that up, Bruno, because that's the the part of their performance that they've really uh, had a, a performance deficit on with the uh, DPI cars, even when they were performance balanced last year. It was clear that on the bumpier tracks, the DPIs who had um, slightly different regulations for for the suspension and a bit more that they could play with. They were, were, were at a big advantage. Um, let's let's drag you back to ELMS and uh, RLR then. Um, that great announcement for you uh, for the ELMS season. Uh, Le Castellet in April, Monza in May, July in Barcelona. You missed Silverstone, as you said. Spa-Francorchamps and then Portimao on my birthday weekend to finish off the season. How long is it since you've... Well, Le Castellet and Portimao, how long is it since you've raced at either of those, actually? Oh, I've uh, raced last year in the Castellet for the Ilmes. Did the of first course. race with, uh, of course. with United. Uh, it was it, it's a uh, it, it was after they resurfaced the track, so mm. quite a different uh, experience from whenever when I was testing there in GP2. I never raced that before, so that was the first time. Um, and the Portimao, uh, I never actually raced in Portimao, mm. so uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I love this track. Um, my first experience there with Aston Martin. Uh, was in the dark and in the wet, so not the, the very easiest way to learn this track, especially how difficult it is to see around, but love the track. I saw the race last year, the race last year, the final race was mm, awesome. Was. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we can give you a good birthday uh, birthday race and then we can go for a, for a drink afterwards. I'll take you up on that, Mr. Senna. Thank you very much indeed. Bruno, pass on our best to your new teammates and uh, to the, the rest of the team as well. Wish you a good season, not just for RLR, but uh, finish off the season, uh, this season well for Bart and the guys, uh, Bart Hayden and the guys from Rebellion. Good to hear that you're keeping busy and I'll see you in a few weeks' time in Sebring. Enjoy. John, thank you for your time. See you soon. The news that no one is talking about. The stories that aren't reported anywhere else. And for valid editorial reasons. Pointless press release of the week on Midweek Motorsport. Nice to hear Bruno Senna on the radio, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, good He's voice apparently, says Sarah Rigby. Silky dulcet tones, apparently. We need to get him doing a few voiceovers for us, don't we? He's a, he's a good... Uh... He's good chatter. He's a good media personality. He is very good, very good indeed. Wish him the best for that. That's a that's a good hire by RLR. What's our a pointless press release of the week this week then? Do you remember Tomato Bar? Tomato Bar, yes, yes. <laughs> this was uh, a, it was a junior single seater formula sponsor, wasn't it? It it was yes. They they did we make a... it up or was it actually real? It was made up by Nick Damon. This right. this was a cereal uh, uh, bar that contained termites yeah. uh, that was sponsoring a uh, team in a championship that we made up uh, in using Spanish many years ago. Yes, yes. Don't tell me it's actually appeared because there's been quite a lot of things that we've done on this show or that we've had as little in-jokes that, that have gone real. That have gone real. Never mind viral, they have just actually gone real, which I find very scary. It is I, Leclerc. Mm. Uh, it hasn't, as far as I'm aware. Okay. But it was the first thing I thought of when I got this press release. Really? Because the first word is Futuro Coin. <laughs> 
Aye, I know where you're going with this. There's a. Did you did you hear the issue with another virtual money that happened recently? Go on. Well, no, I'll let you do this, and and then and then I'll I'll tell you what they need to insure. This is about uh, the first virtual currency sponsorship of Formula One, isn't it? Aston Martin Red Bull Racing is pleased to mm. announce a new partnership with global cryptocurrency FuturoCoin. The yeah. partnership represents the first time a cryptocurrency has sponsored a team in Formula One and marks another exciting development in the uh, also exciting step in the development of the industry. Excellent. Uh, Christian Horner said, The rise of blockchain technology has been truly remarkable. No, stop. Stop right now. Stop right now. You and I both know Christian Horner, and those words never came out of his mouth. Secure digital currencies are on the leading edge of technological development, he added. Yeah, he never said that either. That is, that's like the day-to-day and... The German finance minister said to me as he left the meeting, I'm not very happy, but I'll have to live with it. Is that what he said to you? Uh, yes, that's what he said. Are you sure? Yes. What language did you yes, say Yes, exactly. That is, there's no way that those words came out of Christian Horner's mouth. None. Should Zero. About some other things that Christian Horner said this oh, week. Really? Go yes. on. Lewis Hamilton is scared of Max Verstappen. Is he? Lewis Hamilton this week Instagrammed himself jumping out of a plane. I do not think he's scared of Max Verstappen. <laughs> do you know what Max had to say about it? Uh, I'm not jumping out of a plane. That's exactly what he said. Or, <laughs> although his actual words were, I don't want to get injured, so skydiving is not available for me right now. Right. Which suggests that Max Verstappen is scared of something. Not that Lewis Heights Hamilton is scared or of throwing anything. Or throwing himself out of a perfectly serviceable plane. Or injury. Yes. Uh, something else that uh, Christian Horner said this week? Uh, oh, really? Liberty right. Media are quite naive. Right. To be fair, this is something that uh, Nick Damon's been saying for two years. So yeah. we'll, I think we might give him that one. No, no, he's, he's always... Uh, uh, He's always in. He's always interesting, isn't is Nick? And he's he's almost always what right. Mm, yes. Sometimes. Mm. Uh, one thing we have forgotten to do twice already, right? And are now going to rectify. Spirit right. of the Race Award for the Bathurst Twelve Hours. Yes, I hadn't forgotten. Forgotten. We couldn't do it during. Uh, the race because of our TV commitments, lovey, uh, and because I was dashing off to, you know, be almost the last word before, before the six o'clock Sunday night news on network television in uh, in Australia, my once a year. Thank you, Mark Beretta of uh, Seven, um, who is an absolute star and just uh, helps me out so much. Um, it was a, it, it wasn't really a close run thing. Honourable mentions to uh, Shane Van Gisbergen uh, for his monster last stint where he dragged the Triple Eight car, which had been somewhat recalcitrant all through the race, kicking and screaming to uh, the fourth position, and then collapsed and had to be thrown into. A, an ice bath uh, also to the winning Porsche team and particularly to Matty Campbell uh, however 
to the spirit of the race for the Olympic Molly uh, Bathurst 12 hours for 2019 went without any shadow of a doubt by a huge margin, more than um, what 60% of the votes cast went to the 62 Aston Martin, the R Motorsport team, and to Jake Dennis. First time on the mountain for Jake. Uh, oh, I've got to mention Raffaele Marcello as well, who got some uh, votes as well for his solid defence, which you mentioned earlier on in the Triple Nine car. Um, however, um, an extraordinary run by R Motorsport, by Jake and his teammates. Uh, fastest lap in Pirelli. Top 10 shootout for Jake. Ultimately didn't get to sit on the pole. Had he won that race, he would have been the first car from outside the top seven to have won the race in the history of it. So spirit of the race, Jake Dennis and the rest of the 62 are motorsport Aston Martin team, as voted by the viewers and listeners. Uh, almost half past nine here in the UK, Series 14, Episode 5. It is Midweek Motorsport. Tim is up in London. Where would you like to go next? Just as punks are tawny Phil heralds, or sometimes not, the coming of spring every February, it's reports of another near-mythical animal that foreshadow the arrival of the new season of NASCAR. Yes, for as long as anyone can remember, two or three weeks before the Daytona 500, a superb owl appears somewhere in North America. And this year is no exception, as over the weekend, I'm sure you'll have seen on Twitter hundreds of thousands of mentions of the superb owl being in Atlanta last weekend. Right. Uh, Declan Brennan is going to join us to talk about this and many other things. Yeah. Hello, Dex. How are you this evening? I'm very well. I, I have... Uh... I could go on all night about the dangers of hashtags and how they can be. Uh, oh yeah, hashtags in many ways. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I enjoyed the superb owl, uh, 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 which was a, uh, which was lovely. A tawny owl it was. Because I, I what didn't enjoy the Super Bowl because you may or may not be aware, despite living in Massachusetts. I literally there's there's several things in life I can't avoid. One of them is the Patriots. So that, that was a, a horrible viewing on Sunday night. Anyway, we've other things to talk about, but it was a superb L. Uh, just before we get onto what we're going to talk to you about, um, um, if you say I'm sorry, uh, my my. Let's start by going off on a tangent. Let's start by going off on a tangent rather than go around uh, the. Houses? Uh, yes. I forgot what I said. <laughs> Cryptocurrency, Dex. Cryptocurrency. Yes. Um, I, I was going to say to Tim, one of the things that, that anybody who, who takes on crypto, cryptocurrency spots has got to be careful of is make sure you get a backup. Get it on the hard drive somewhere because a major cryptocurrency has just failed, leaving people <laughs> millions out of pocket because the creator and owner of it had it all... died with him. ...on literally... Had died with him, had it all on a laptop with no backup, and nobody's been able to get into it yet. Um, yeah. What's what's your experience of cryptocurrency and motor racing sponsorship? I, I will say that the, the, the interesting thing is, uh, without knowing all the details of, of that deal, if it's a new cryptocurrency, uh, if it's about to launch or if it's in its infancy, uh, th- there's a really interesting model here whereby the a potential partnership in F1 with a team can add to its uh, prominence and its profile and its value. And effectively, the team may well be in a situation where the, the sponsorship comes in the form of effectively of uh, a certain amount of the currency at a certain price. 
so it's in their interest as they raise its profile uh, for its price to rise and for the team to cash in whenever they're ready. To, that may not be the case, but there are deals like that floating around the racing business right now. So uh, uh, it's it's an interesting time to be involved in a. Uh, in racing with such uh, with with such an interesting uh, number of uh, of of uh, products like this uh, emerging, so uh, so it could be it could be something that that is uh, Red Bull could go all in on, and could turn into something pretty substantial for them. Yeah, uh, I, it's a funny one, isn't it? Um, but... oh, it's a, it, it, it could be no, it could be almost worthless. You know, too, it's like you really the, the, it's such a volatile market. So it's a it's an interesting position to be in. You're seeing them dotting up in soccer, all this secondary sponsorship in Britain now. Uh, yeah. You're seeing it in the in the championship and the, what is what is effectively the small sleeve sponsors or the sponsor, the smaller sponsor under the number in the championship. A lot of them are in that are in that sector now. So it is growing. It is it is expanding as a as a, an opportunity. Bizarrely, for something that is uh, in the virtual world, it's a real thing now, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've missed having you on. Um, what have we got Dex to talk on about tonight? I know we're going to do some bikes in a little while, but what are we going to do before that? Uh, well, we're going to do sort of uh, North American motorsport uh, in terms of uh, where where it is really, because uh, NASCAR is obviously the biggest uh, motorsport in North America at the moment but in a very much state of decline uh, and last year uh, they lost one of their not through carelessness but through retirement uh, lost one of their star names in Dale Earnhardt Jr. So first of all Dex what effect did that have on NASCAR's numbers? I, I, I'm going to answer that by not answering it uh in so far as that it's super hard to tell with the decline that has been going on year on year whether it had any significant effect over and above what it seems to be now a natural and an inexorable decline in 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 ratings numbers so my answer is it could have everything or nothing because the the, the decline in the in the uh in the general audience uh, has been going on effectively since it peaked in 2005. Just to give you some, uh, some, uh, you know, uh, some background. And so this in 2005, the average race was getting a 5.4 share. Uh, and, the, uh, and in 2004, the, the average share for the chase was 4.7. Uh, that's in a Nielsen rating point. Mm. Uh, say that's around. That's probably around six, seven million. Uh, those sort of numbers. Uh, what's interesting is every year, the the average for the final ten races uh, is is lower than the average for the, for the rest of the season. Uh, that's partly to do with the the, the Daytona 500 will have a little bit of an effect on that. But really, uh, it's it's once they race into into what is effectively football season, they 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 begin to lose a substantial amount of their audience so so we're talking now 13 14 years since the the sport was at its peak uh fox dropped 17 to 18 for its spring uh 
it's spring showings from 4.1 million. I'm going to excuse me, I'm going to uh, change my metrics here and go from viewers, uh, go from ratings points to viewers. Uh, Fox went in 2017 from averaging 4.1 million viewers to 3.3 million in, in 18. That's an enormous drop. That's and like yes, 20%. that is a huge drop. And yes, that is arguably that might be higher than the regular decline. And some of that is the junior, the Dale Jr. effect. But but ultimately what's going on here is is there's about seven factors here and all of motorsport needs to be aware of this. And coming off IMSA's biggest event, uh, which while I, I don't have the exact figures, I've, I anecdotally have been told that the the TV numbers are, are pretty underwhelming for uh, for the Rolex 24 in the US on NBC Sports. On, be, really? And, yeah. And that's, that's partly, extraordinary because... Well, our streaming numbers up for the were up for the audio, and and up by a decent uh, a decent uh, percentage. And um, I'm led to believe that the streaming TV, which is not available in the US, uh, was up as well uh, in terms of the international feed. Obviously, what we haven't got is numbers for Velocity Discovery in in Canada. Um, but that's that's really interesting. It's and it's partly because they they I think they made the error uh, of and this this is the, these these are the things that really help IMSA generally speaking if they'd had the start on the on the network the way Fox on a number of occasions put the start of the race at three o'clock on a on the Saturday actually on the Fox network as opposed to the Fox Sports network uh, it would have significantly altered the numbers but what I'm from what I'm hearing the numbers are are not much greater than than what you might would have got on Fox Sports for an IMSA race uh, over the last few years. So, uh, and that's disappointing. But it's also something that we all have to be, uh, that NASCAR's decline and everything else has to be something that we have to be really cognizant of because it is becoming really apparent, John, that across all of sports, that uh, younger audiences particularly aren't watching television anymore. They're not watching network TV. They are in some numbers watching sport on TV, but ultimately all of the demos for pretty much every major sport are growing uh, older, uh, you know, year on year in terms of the median age. The frightening one for NASCAR, and this is, this again, it's its, it's biggest audience uh would be a, a much older demo. And in fact, in terms of the major sports in the US, the median median age uh, for, and I've said this to you before, but but the last study that I have access to is was published in 17 from 16, but they measured from 2006 to 2016, the median audience grew nine years. So basically it just got older, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. And then if you look at the same for something like the MLS, which is a much younger that only grew a year over that same period. Yeah. So it's a, yeah. uh, but I do well, I, I, is, is that, but is that because the MLS are broadening their major footprint or are we talking about the TV audience? Cause I, that's the TV audience specifically. Really? Yeah. So I, that's the thing is, I think people are consuming pro MLS is being consumed in, in, in greater numbers than before. It's, it's how it's being consumed. And this, this comes back to something we've spoken about many times is that the, the model for NASCAR continues to be TV because it's the largest numbers, but it, but it's also, it's not delivering, uh, numbers that are going to buy, uh, 
what people want, you know, what people want to consume. And but here's an interesting thing, Dex. During the red flag periods at the Rolex Daytona 24, which obviously wouldn't have helped the uh, TV audience, um, our audio audience grew, and it grew steadily. At what tends to suggest to me that people were drifting away from that watching their TV screens in the US particularly because more, well more than 50% of our audio audience for that event was streaming um, audio audience for that event. We, we don't get figures from XM Sirius. I think they were drifting John, away to do other things. Is, is, is that because do we think during the red flag they took more commercials than they would during normal racing? I, I don't know because I didn't. Um, NBCSM were running a completely different stream to the internet uh, TV edit to uh, what was going on on the international stream. So they yeah, had so Sports Gold would have had a different, and their streaming service would have had a different stream to you. Yeah, anything that was going out on NBC had an NBC specific set of pictures. They weren't always watching the same. I I nipped to to a hospitality unit to grab some breakfast. I think it was, and there were two TVs side by side, playing different pictures at the same time at different parts of the track, um, but in in synchronicity, if you will. It was fantastic. I was like, wow, that's great. If I just sort of look in the middle of that, I can see two things happening at once. Um, and, <laughs> and, and obviously, made me a bit cross-eyed for a while, um, and obviously they were putting their pit lane reporters in vision. They were doing stuff at the Peacock pit perch, uh, down on the pit lane exit, etc., etc. Um, anybody who was taking an international feed with English language commentary, like Velocity Discovery in Canada, they were taking the same pictures broadly speaking, that, that we were seeing, and they were taking the audio from trackside, from IMSA Radio and IMSA TV. Anybody streaming IMSA TV, either on RadioLeMond.com, on our pop-out player, um, or on the IMSA app, they were seeing the same pictures as us. I, I just think, Tim, that, that during the red flag periods, particularly that one... Um, uh, the, the later one, while we were waiting for the chequered flag... People were going off to do other things, and if they could carry us with them, which is much easier to do as an audio feed than a video feed, than they were, than they were, and it was extraordinary to see the live numbers just rising and rising and rising. We we had the same simultaneous sort of same simultaneous numbers as we get at the start and the end of Le Mans at the Rolex Daytona. Well, that says year. a lot about the sta- status of the event, John. It does. But- it does, but but I think the, the the big point here is I think is that, uh, and and I'll underline it by by just mentioning one other key factor of in terms of the research I've been doing. The median age of sports TV viewers in general in the United States is now increasing at a higher rate than the population. Yeah, that basically means less young people are watching TV. Yeah, TV. We have to as a business and as people involved and stakeholders in and and. Uh, involved in in these type of events have to i think have to have a really hard look at how we develop those events in every respect in uh, with regards to the mm. delivery platform that's going to create a new audience because because that's I, go on yeah I, I i don't disagree i don't 
disagree with that, but let, let's explore that in a moment because I've got a point I want to make. But let's bring Tim Gray back in first. Who, who wants to throw another hand grenade uh, <laughs> un, un, underneath the? Uh, Not at all. The, it's more supporting information on all right, this, go really. On. Go ahead. Which is ESPN Plus, which yep. is ESPN's uh, online service. Over has, the top service, yes. Has doubled its audience in the last five months. So since uh, the end of August, they have doubled their. Uh, um, their users from 1 million to 2 million. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, but you know why? Content. They've, yeah. added, some, they've added some really... In, they've, they've got, for example, they've got Outer Market Hockey, which is... Uh, there's, this is the thing, John. Uh, all of these platforms are driven by live sports. Mm-hmm. The big marquee live sports. They're mm-hmm. not... And I, and I hate to say this, but they're not driven by stuff like IMSA and... and, uh, and what what we need to do is we need to find a way to package and present uh, the product in a way that uh, is going to appeal to those who are no longer watching terrestrial television or television in any way, uh, who are consuming things in much smaller bites uh, and, and doing so in a way that suits them. And I know obviously radio – what you have with radio works because people can take it with them. It's in their car. It's on their phone. Mm-hmm. All of that, you know, and, and uh, you can do well, all their things yes, and listen to 24 exactly. races. And that's, exactly. that's brilliant. That's the way it should be. But there's be. another thing as well. There's another thing as well that is being missed here. That whether it's on radio, network radio, uh, terrestrial radio, over-the-air radio, call it what you will, or network television and the streaming services that network television provide for... Sports in the US, the model is broken. They are still living in the 1950s. You simply cannot nowadays expect anybody, but particularly not the young, to be interrupted by an ad break every four to six minutes that takes you away from the action for three minutes. Now, we've been having a completely different conversation about this, um, about the Bathurst, 24, uh, the Bathurst 12 hours at the weekend. In th- in nearly 13 hours of broadcast at the weekend, um, the network that was looking after that, which was uh, Seven Seven Sport, and it went out live on Seven Mate, which is a free-to-air network channel uh, in Australia. They had 50 three-minute breaks. Um, actually, I think it might have been 45, but I, I, let's say it was 50 three-minute breaks over that that 13-hour period. And because they were flexible in how they got them in, they loaded them into the first part of the race and front-loaded it. And despite the paucity of in- interventions by the uh, AMG E63 safety car, see, I remember that from me notes earlier on, um, uh, they managed to get pretty much the last hour without... There was no ad breaks at all in the last hour, even on the on the network television. That's astonishing. There was no ad breaks at all on the international feed because once we got out for the network feed, we considered we continued to talk. Same for the um, streaming ra- radio, obviously, and uh, they they actually almost did better than that. And I think in about the last half, uh, last hour and a half, there was. Probably, if you take that 55 minutes, even in the previous half an hour, I think there was two two or three ad breaks. They deliberately reduced the ad break length, um, which uh, the ad break um, uh, uh, 
uh, uh, numbers and made them a slightly longer. I think they had been two and a half minutes last year and they were increased to three. Um, but the, the, that means there was less frequent ad breaks, which meant the race could run. And even when we had the four hours of green flag racing, they tried to get the ad breaks in it, that were um, sympathetic with what, with what was going on on the track. Now, Right. Sometimes that meant you missed a pit stop or two. If we were coming into a pit stop schedule where it was going to be scheduled green flag pit stops, they took the ad break then rather than interrupting the action that was going on, which was an interesting choice. But they did that deliberately. And I sit in the, sat in the production meeting to do that. And my point about American sports coverage and particularly network on radio and TV is they are still wedded to going to relatively long ad breaks after relatively short bits of action and then relying on doing a catch-up to see anything you've missed. They also still sell ad breaks with exclusivity in segment, market segment. And for those people who don't speak marketing, that means that if you have a if you sell exclusivity in that break, that means if you sell an ad to Ford, there can be no other car manufacturer in that ad. And to do that and charge premium and still be able to get their ad revenue, they do something that's called flush and dump, which means they do a three and a half minute ad break. They come back for a 35 or 40 seconds recap, which is almost always only an overhead shot and a look at one of the classes and then they go to another ad break so that they can say to the advertiser you've had exclusivity in that break the system is broken young people particularly and in general people who consume longer game sports like endurance racing cricket to a certain extent soccer Soccer runs without any ad breaks in the US. That's 45 minutes without a break. Formula One on ESPN runs the whole race without any ad breaks. That's an hour and 20 minutes at the absolute uh, at the absolute minimum. Fans will not accept having their play, having their watching, having their interest broken up every four to six minutes by three and a half or effectively seven minutes of ad breaks. And that's and John- why that's why it doesn't work. That's and and interestingly, what's happening is, uh, I'm a perfect example of it. This year, I've given up my being sport, uh, sorry, my my uh, my Sling TV over the top service, which had being sport, because the being sport gave me uh, Moto America, World Superbike, and MotoGP. I gave that up because the economic worked out uh, at the cost co- that cost. I could just buy a direct subscription to MotoGP video pass, World, World Superbike video pass, and watch the uh, almost instantaneous YouTube full broadcast of Moto yep. America, yep. which they, you know, so so in, in some respects, the, the market is all over the place. Uh, the thing is, Dex, when it's done right, the market is there. Um, I, I, you know, we haven't got the money to do big um, market research on the demographics. But when I go to the meetups at the track when i when we talk to people offline as well as online about what they're doing anecdotally i can tell you that our audience is retaining the older crowd who are tech savvy people who are in their 50s and above but we are getting people in at the bottom end and that is partly because of how it's presented and when we work with people like the like the supercars uh, production team, like the guys at Creventic who who present the events in a 
sympathetic and knowledgeable way. Look at look at Kravetnik and the the Hancock 24-hour series. That is by no means a world championship style season, and yeah. yet and yet they produce. What is and and the guys at uh, Null Vice Vians or 221 do a great job on a very mod- modest budget. It's it's not, it wouldn't go on to NBC Sports, of course it wouldn't, but it fulfills the quality required for the people who want to watch that and it gets big numbers and it's worthwhile and people tune in for a a, a long time uh, and I, I think it's about particularly with the american networks i think it's about breaking the mold as espn have had the opportunity to do by not being charged for the rights to put formula one on the telly right see it's a. I'll give an example of, of how uh, the right approach works, and I, I actually tweeted about it. I was in the car, not driving, coming home from a, from a, from my from my son's uh, skiing lesson, and uh, I'm sitting in the car, and uh, Bathurst tweets out live a live link to the drop of the green flag Correct. at night as the sun is, which is so. Suddenly, you can watch that. It's been it's pushed to you, like uh, I, like, and you don't have to do anything. It's arrived. Of... It's arrived without you doing anything. Yes, and it's and it was magnificent, absolutely magnificent, and stuff like that. That we need to see more of that, more use of uploading highlights super fast. You know, live live drop ins at key points in races. Uh, mm. uh, you know, uh, that are that are are. Uh, that are uh, um, geo, uh, not geo blocked, you know, that, that are uh, are rights free, etc. That sort of thing. It's it's we have to think about ways how we're going to grow this audience uh, across the platforms that matter to, to, to the next generation of fans. And uh, uh, NASCAR is wedded to, to TV, as we mm. talked about, and it's it's absolutely. Uh, I'll tell you something. Uh, I found out this week uh, about two of the larger teams what they're what they're charging. Mm. On a for primary for single races for large partners, and it's absolutely insane. It's a million dollars a race, uh, yeah. And uh, there is almost no way, unless there's a hefty B two B aspect of that, how that's no. even remotely sustainable no. with with uh, with uh, where their audience is going. Couple of things. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I think I may have said 120 minutes uh, minimum for. Uh, for Formula One, I meant an hour and twenty minimum. It's a hundred and twenty minutes maximum. I got myself really tied up uh, there about the length of a, a Formula One race. Um, the second part of it is, um, you know this, Dex, because you've had the same conversations. No names, no pack drill here, but you and I will both have, have spoken to uh, either major automotive manufacturers um, representatives or major advertisers who support programs in all kinds of motor racing including sports car racing who we can have a really sensible conversation with about whether the tv model particularly in the u.s works and they'll give you chapter and verse about why spot ads as it's called 30 second 60 second ads simply don't work anymore and so you say to them, well, great, fantastic. So let's divert some of your budget and do something a little more meaningful where we can tell your story. And they'll go, nah, I can't do that. Why not? Because the clients don't want to. 
They just want to be on telly. They just want their ads in the breaks. They just want their uh, directors to see them. I was going to say the CEO wants to be able to see his ad on television. Exactly. You know, exactly uh, right. Uh, There are other ways to do it. In fairness, in fairness, and, and it drives me crazy and Eve crazy as well. We've since 2006, when we formed Radio Show Limited, we've never had a spot ad at all on any of our coverage. We've always covered it if we've been multitasking and doing it for television. We've stopped talking, let the ads, go, let the TV go to ad, and then continued for our audience. We've never done that. We finance what we do because it costs a lot of money in other ways. And the commercial partners get their value, their return on the investment in other ways by bringing people into the studio, by doing features on um, on their product, by having them sponsor a segment like a pit lane or an hourly update or whatever. But what really narks me is that's still good enough, not good enough for some people. They still don't think that that should be the way to go and they should be able to have it without anybody actually us mentioning anybody's name <laughs> well, during and after. That's your problem, but uh, but that that is that. But th- that model, you see, ultimately, it's what people want. You know, people want. I want to. I want to. I want to be able to watch. One of the reasons, I, as I said, I shelled out for 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 my MotoGP passes because I want to be able to sit down and watch every race, support race, everything uninterrupted, on demand, when I want. I don't not getting up in the middle of the night to watch them live. I want to watch them uninterrupted exactly. when I want with no spoilers, and that's. Because I'm a selfish, modern, everything now hmm. member of society. And that's how it works. And I'm willing to pay for that. And if you're not willing to pay for that, and if you're still, or if you're not in a position to do that, and you're at the at the mercy of television, then you end up in the situation where you have to fund it. You're funding it yourself. You have to go out to all your partners. You have to give them the value. And as you said, their board and their CMO and his boss want to see their ads on TV when they tune in. Yeah, you know. Uh, let's uh, let's quickly move to the uh, let's NHRA. Uh, move into RA. NHRA. Really quickly, they've basically just revamped. A perfect example, right off the back of what I was saying about MotoGP, they have just completely revamped and taken in house their uh, their uh, their own live streaming for full weekends, uh, where because nobody was giving them live, everything was was post produced. For Fox Sports, they have taken the step now of, and they've had it before, but now they've they're 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 make, creating a robust online uh, premium uh, service for their for for live coverage of the of their race weekends. And I, I think just it's it's where people are going. It's like there's a there's a core audience who pay for it, so that's what they're going to do, uh, just like World Superbike and and and, uh, and MotoGP does. Mm. Uh, and I just wonder if that's the future. And talking about MotoGP, uh, they have been doing some pre-season testing this week already. And Mark Marquez uh, is injured, so hasn't been able to do any long runs. Uh, so who's been fastest, Dex? Oh, that's Mark Marquez. Uh, still Mark Marquez. <laughs> so, so a man who, uh, who uh, by his own admission, is at 70%, right? Uh, he is... Uh, Struggling to break with his left hand into left with well, breaking into left-handed corners. That's a pang. Arguably, that's two nine, twelve, and fifteen. And then if you add five, which is a a left-handed curve as opposed to a corner, uh, he he so he's struggling. You know, in a third of the lap, he's still quickest. Uh, 
He can't push it because he can't crash. He's still yeah. quickest. Uh, what's absolutely unbelievable is uh, is that we've only just discovered through his surgeon that they couldn't believe the state of his arm when they opened it up to repair it after the season. What we didn't know was, did you know that when he won the championship, he was celebrating on the podium and he was Scott Redding was throwing him, Scott Redding was throwing him up and down. He dislocated it then. Uh, of course, he dislocated it at Valencia at the end of the season and the, the next race. And it's just absolutely extraordinary. But but So the frightening part is he's at 70%. And even though he can't go consistently fast, he was able to put in fast laps and he was quickest. Uh, absolutely just so worrying for everybody else. Uh, you know, he's... he's I'll, I'll, The times were... Uh, he was over a quarter of a second ahead of Rince. Uh, interestingly, that's on the Suzuki. Vinales, uh, to my surprise, and I think to his, was uh, three-tenths off in third, Rossi in sixth, four-tenths and a bit off. They clearly have listened to, to the complaints of Rossi and, and, and Vinales between the November test and the uh, and this tested Sepang because the bike clearly is better than it was uh, there's there uh, it, it's fascinating the, the times it's hard to really divine too much from the times for example the quickest Ducati was Tito Rabat uh, on the uh, Reale uh, Aventia racing bike uh, and so it's hard to know but uh, it was uh, it, we'll see more tomorrow uh, again I'd say maybe we don't start worrying yet because I don't think everybody showed their hands but let's see what happens tomorrow if Marquez is quick as again we can probably just wrap up the season and all go home and not worry about it just give him and, the trophy uh, now yes and and speaking of giving him the trophy now uh, we, we didn't cover this but World Superbike tested the previous week uh, at Portimao and uh Jonathan Ray was quickest by, let me see, a second. Uh, just just under a second. And just to put that in perspective, a second then covered the next, uh, let me see, uh, 11 uh, riders. <laughs> or 10, uh, 10 riders. That's, so, you know, maybe the FIA should just basically have their, uh, have their uh, award ceremony in March. Basically, uh, not the FIA. Uh, sorry, the FIM should have their award ceremonies in March. Mm. But uh, maybe things will get better. Who knows? Yeah. Well, mm. uh, <laughs> I'm not really selling. Don't you're not buy your made. World Superbike subscription now. <laughs> yeah. Buy it. Buy it. We'll, we'll do a proper World Superbike preview next week. Uh, it's been a busy yeah. old show tonight. Thanks, Dex, for coming on. Great stuff. And uh, no time to do the tweets, but lots of people saying how much they've enjoyed uh, that little chat with Dex. We'll try and get him back on again uh, in the next few weeks in our longest off-season, mid-season, sort of already in the season break. Um, and thank you to Bruno Senna, to Richard Creel for being on the show tonight, as well as... Uh, Andy Cotton from Racecar Engineering. Our executive producer up in London was Tim Gray. The responsible adult was omnipresent. I'm John Hindorf. And the RSL Llama has decided not to come back from Australia. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.